Welcome to Fandom Power. Hey guys, welcome back to Fandom Power. This week it's uh, week two of Fandom Power presents The Fan Batch. Once again, I'm joined here in studio with uh, producer Andy. Hello. And our other co-host out in Halifax. Welcome back, Hank McLaughlin, you superstar, you. Hello, world. Tell me a little bit. Let's use this first uh, few seconds here. Tell me about Vile Groove. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, I met a guy. <laughs> boy meets boy. Nice. I met, <laughs> I met a guy, and uh, he makes he makes dope beats. He he he. he uh, I write rhymes a lot. I've been writing rhymes since I was a kid. You can attest to that. I can. I've yes, been, I can. I've been into hip hop like it's my religion. Your whole life. I was probably about 13 years old. Yep. Um, and I've always wanted to do something with it, but I never felt, I mean, writing rhymes and stuff like that and dabbling here and there has always been a compulsion. But I've always had people like, hey, man, you know, because I'm, I'm constantly doing it at work. And if you worked for me, you'd be like, my boss is the weirdest guy or either that or my boss. Because he doesn't shut up. <laughs> I just freestyle all day long, all especially day. if I'm in a good mood. Yeah. All day long. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, I make I make beats and uh, check check them out. And I just I've never really connected with anybody like that. Right. And uh, this thing was crazy organic this kid is super talented and in a, in the middle of a pandemic where we, sh- we share a work bubble. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of perfect to, to be able to share like a, a music bubble as well. And so I, I mean, just some cool collaborations with some local talent, like, like aquaculture, check that band out guys. Yeah. If, if, if you haven't, they're a really talented band from Halifax and just old seeds that I'd never really thought would ever bear flower weird you know like i'm gonna be a rapper i'm almost 50 i think i'm gonna make a rap album and it's 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 awesome i wouldn't have it any other way actually well i know that we've been sort of following this evolution as it's sort of come together as somebody on the outside i would say rather quickly because out of nowhere suddenly there was a single and then there were two singles and we watched the youtube videos and kind of went holy shit that's good <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's really coming together we just had a little like sort of fun run on merch just as a lark we, yeah. we happened upon uh you know and i guess a lot of this stuff is kismet sure um and so you know we just we ran we ran a ridiculously low run of uh, of hats and sold them out and like it turned out to be about six hours nice uh didn't really expect that but that was that was super cool so we're gonna do a little bit more stuff Jay, Jaden Shea, that's the, that's the guy, that's Vile's real name. Yeah. He's doing a little like old school CDR. He's going to burn our music on CDR. Right, so right. Hand number them and autograph them. And that's really them, cool. Little, you know, give them out and stuff. It's cheap. It's really cheap to be, to do little fan service things. Yeah. Yeah. That stickers, uh, which is a great way to enter. Like, cause you can put them up anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Know, it's not necessarily legal, but do do what you want, kids. It's the Rebel Alliance. I mean, we we contemplated a sticker campaign for uh, for our show, and then thought you know it was too traceable back to us, and because we're yeah, you know yeah, we're yeah. we're closer yeah. to fifty than we are to forty, and nobody wants to be in trouble. Well, well yeah, and that's it. But uh, so I mean, it, we're doing two hundred holographic two inch stickers. Oh, that's cool. Forty five dollars American. That's really cool. It's a really good deal, 
um and and then just like just actually working with with other cats and 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 having another outlet i'm just so creatively i'm so busy right now it's it's kind of mental which is i'm super busy at work too like work is work is uh construction during this pandemic yeah. is um the cost of doing business the the, uh, the 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 ability to do business it's it's just it's very taxing on on sort of i guess it, you would call it real life although yeah. i like to keep music and this as my real life if i can i kind of like lauren says when you come home punch out right punch into real life you know what that's I mean? right which is difficult but yeah no it's i i'm hitting this like creative thing this sort of weird stride and i'm i'm it's a great time to do it because I know a lot of people that at my age are like, what am I going to do now? Or like, I I've done this my whole life. And I, it's, it's nice to, to like the game doesn't end, you know? No, it doesn't. Like, so it's nice to have fresh new, you know, stuff every day. And, and, and uh, at least creatively it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's real cool, man. If you guys want to check it out, um, vile groove on Bandcamp, all one word uh vile groove on soundcloud hank solo that's that's my uh my rap name yeah uh you can check us out on youtube and all kinds of other formats and we're probably going to have something physical out well we'll see how the pandemic goes we're trying to put something physical something cool for 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 like hip-hop fans like a vinyl yeah. which yeah, is yeah. really cool it's expensive but and yeah we're having so much fun so if you check it out check us out on all those things but Check us out here. Start, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Star Wars Jam. Yeah, so it's the fan batch, and uh, we're back with uh, it's week two, although this is episode three. So I'm back to form this week. I know we discussed last week that I might have been a little bit uh, pre uh, predisposed to maybe not liking the show based on my own sort of biases. And, so, but uh, let's just qualify. Who can deny, though, right? Where you're coming from is who can deny how good Republic Commando the game was? Yeah, and I mean, good enough that it just got a re-release. So, I mean, people who missed that game back on the original Xbox are now discovering it. And I think, you know, I hope that those characters are just as endearing now as they were back then. Certainly, they were endearing enough to at least get a a, a spot in the Clone Wars proper. So, right. you know. And so, I think... Uh, if you caught the deep cut to the Republic commandos directly in this, yep. I hope, I hope you did, but if you didn't, we'll get into it soon. Cause it's in this episode, really, really cool in this episode. Oh man. So you're already, you're already touching on stuff that I completely miss. So yeah, I'm definitely really looking forward one. to that one. It's so subtle too. It's, it's subtle as hell. Wicked, wicked. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. This one, it's episode three. It's called the replacements. Although if you looked at your Disney plus yesterday, it actually said episode three. So I was a little nervous that, what? Did they just get lazy? <laughs> just call it episode three? <laughs> Depending on when you're listening to this, this debuted, uh, uh, replacements debuted Friday, May 14th, uh, 2021. This one is written by Matt McNavetz. Now, if you're not familiar with that name, let me just uh, put you at ease and tell you that he was the lead writer for seasons six and seven of the Clone Wars, and in fact, he did write the original Bad Batch arc. We are in great, great company, guys. Yeah. This is fantastic. He also wrote the arcs for Cad Bane and the young Boba Fett, as well as a four-episode arc around Maul. 
the four-episode arc that never got produced because the show was canceled, the same four-episode arc that later would be adapted to Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir. Nice. Yeah. Several episodes of Rebels, and he was the co-writer on Jedi Fallen Order. That's right. So, yeah, this guy's got some uh, pretty good Star Wars lineage. (laughs) Nice. This one's directed by a familiar name, Nathaniel Villanova. Same as last episode. Runtime on this one, it's at 2447 without your credits. And the episode synopsis this week is pretty short. The Bad Batch gets stuck on a desolate moon. All right, let's go. The episode opens with the Havoc Marauder limping through hyperspace. Electrical surges can be seen arcing across the ship's hull. It appears that the damage from blasting their way out of Seleucami was more severe than we thought. In the back of the ship, Omega is sitting on the deck leaning against the gonk droid that the squad had picked up in the last episode while she reads from a data pad. Hunter comes back to offer up some rations, and Wrecker leaps down from the rear turret slash observation dome and emphatically devours his and then asks for more. Hunter tells him that the rations are low, and that's all there is. Without hesitation, Omega offers Wrecker her ration, but before he can reach it, Hunter nudges Wrecker a few feet across the deck and scolds him. She doesn't even have a place to sleep, and you want to take her food too? Wrecker, realizing the error of his ways, politely declines the food, and Omega nonchalantly gives him an okay and goes back to her reading. Wrecker and Hunter share a moment of reflection as they point out that none of them are used to having children around. I just want to talk about the dynamic between uh, Wrecker and Omega for a second, because we saw it sort of uh, early on in the last episode. They sort of share this very sibling-like yeah, there's a kinship there, and I know it's kind of it's come up for me before, and, and it's come up again in this episode. Where again, and I and I don't mean this in a in a negative way, but the simplicity that the Wrecker character uh, is written, I think maybe that you know there's that childlike innocence where he's essentially a child in a man's a man's body. Mm-hmm. I think it kind of plays into that, you know, how he's able to connect with her because, you know, intellectually they might be closer than we think. He learns the simple things real quick. Like he learned that lesson in the last episode. He was the first one to respond to Cut's method of, you know, he was the first one to walk over to her and go, are you okay? Uh, and yeah. He learns real quick here. You know, he, mm, all right. Yeah, no, I, you're right. I don't want any extra food. But there's a really important thing with Omega here that I think actually continues to reinforce our theory that she's Force-sensitive, and I guess it's a lot of people's theories now. Yeah, yeah. She gives without thought of reward. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. So where do we know that from? We know that from the Phantom Menace and Shmi's description to Qui-Gon of 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 Anakin. Anakin Skywalker, yeah. He gives with no thought of reward. That's a Jedi trait. Yeah, very much so. So I, as soon as I was like, you know, and, and it's, it's so, you know, it's so innocent. You can have mine. Yeah. It's not, there's no comp, you know, it's so for me, that was a huge fish hook in the water, if you will, for her being four cents. I think one of the other, you know, tonally thematically that comes through here is that up until now, I mean, here's Wrecker who without, you know, reckless, not reckless abandon, but he's just like, Give me some, hit me again, I think is the, the, the term that he uses. And I think prior to Omega coming along, that's probably the way it was. You know, like he's a big guy. He's used to like, oh, I need another one. So he just gets another one. You know, the, the idea that 
you know, because of that, there's a new dynamic now with what is really a 10-year-old a, a girl. They've all got to come to terms with the way that they did things may not be the way that they can do things going forward because, like you say, not having children around, there's a whole new set of considerations that have to be made. It's true. You know, it, for me, uh, oh, go ahead. No, it's just that they it, watching them all, you know, we certainly see the, the parenting or the, you know, the, the connecting parts of the team are, are Hunter and Wrecker, while yeah. Echo and Tech have been at arm's length, if, if not completely uninvolved. In the sibling kind of... In sort of the interactions with Omega yeah, and stuff. Like, yeah, you're right. You know, they, uh, in, in terms of like giving her lessons or, or learning about nuanced interactions with right, her. And the, right, they, they Those two characters I've noticed have been, been sort of removed from those roles. I wonder, you know, that's. I just assume that that's probably just a, a writing choice that yeah. I, I suspect that down the road that they will all get their their moment with her where they all connect on some level. I really enjoy the interaction between tech and echo in this. So they're developing a neat dynamic. Yeah. I I enjoyed that as well. You could stray, you could stray really close into them being sort of the same character. Almost. Yeah. Right. Two sides of the same coin, really. Exactly. So it's nice to see them, them uh, developing some sort of dynamic. there. We talked before about how uh, the episode titles, you know, are often very cleverly tied directly to the themes of the episode. And this one's called... I wrote a lot of notes about this one. Yeah, this one being called Replacements. I think, you know, for us as a viewer, we really get that first, you know, first dip into replacement territory when we're looking at Omega as potentially Crosshair's replacement. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, And then thematically, the, the replacement of the clone army which is a theme that was set up last episode but the, you, you sort of later on in the episode you get to physically oh, yeah. see that that uh, in place yep and then just in in the greater scope of things what what is happening now if nothing else galactically is the replacement of the republic by the empire oh yeah so it's a yeah, huge yeah. huge broad stroke at the same oh, time it's yes right very down much to the minutiae so they're so clever with these titles So just then a power surge erupts and the interior lights dim. Hunter and Echo share some banter about having already fixed them, and Echo sarcastically adds, add it to the list. Echo taking a seat in the cockpit confirms how banged up the Havoc Marauder really is, and frustratingly tells Tech that things would go faster if he had some help. But Tech, in his what I've chose to uh, call his unfiltered obviousness, tells him that the scanner he is building to test the functionality of the inhibitor chips takes precedence. So, anybody else, like, thoroughly, completely, shockingly amazed that Tech is intuitively building a medical device? Not really. Uh, (laughs) Logically, that's the most important thing that they should be doing. After watching watching one of their own get compromised, and knowing that there's there's a thing in their heads that's that's doing that 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 yeah. that is completely logical for tech to be the highest priority uh, I don't, they should all sort of be bending their will towards that um and i think that that's the underlying theme like that they're actively working on some sort of solution to that and i think that's really cool in a in a cross the streams kind of way you remember there was an episode of star trek and i think it was a tng episode where there was a medical issue and they couldn't figure it out 
and it needed, I think it was Barkley, they needed to take an engineering approach. Mm. So I feel this is kind of similar where you have a guy who's, you know, tech is very indicative of technologically inclined. You know, I feel it's a similar, he's trying to solve a medical problem with an engineering, you know, approach. But what I find, this is where I'm like, what's shocking to me is that here's a guy who's making what looks like a handheld device to scan for a thing that a dedicated medical bay on a Star Destroyer could not find without force yeah. intervention. Yeah, yeah. Does that not speak to his level of, like, ability? It, 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 certainly, it certainly does. That's Anakin-level um, tinkering. Yeah. Right? Like, that's a 10-year-old building a, a, a protocol droid. And did you notice the Easter egg here? He's using the plasma cutter a la I did. from Empire Yeah. Yes, I did yeah. see that. Yeah. Uh, so that begs the question. Now, if tech can de- uh, design a device that's able to not only scan and determine the efficacy of these chips, do we think that that same device could be used to alter or defeat clone programming? Certainly. I mean, if you could replicate the device and start, you know, popping in the, them on heads or putting them in helmets or something like that. Yeah. Uh, again, are we, is it a device that uh, while, while in contact with the chip alters the chip or is it something that can actually alter the chip? It seems like, so we've already got a sort of a benchmark for the best way to approach this. And That's right. To just remove the tri- the chip. Yeah. So, while scanning the chip to see if it's going to affect you in the future seems, you know, it's kind of like my, the way I approach my thyroid thing. I'm like, just cut it out of me if it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can replace its functionality (laughs) with something else that isn't harming me. Go ahead. Sure. (laughs) it out. So, and and in terms of that, it's way uh, makes more sense to just remove the chip since we know that it can be done since we know that there are no, there are nothing but beneficial effects to the clone that the chips are removed from. So I'd be very curious. That was my thought too. Like if they can detect it, then they can start working on. And I went to initially like either changing or altering the programming because I didn't know if maybe they would have the surgical acumen to do this. Certainly they could try and get a droid to do it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And AZ survived, by the way, (laughs) we're going to, we're going to meet him again this episode. Yeah. Yeah, So I just, uh, I thought it was cool. And so this right away, thematically, maybe not even thematically, you get the sense that this is the first indication that like, oh, there's a chance that maybe because given, you know, uh, Omega's uh, conversation with Crosshair back in the, the prison cell, but it's not your fault. And, and mm-hmm. now there's, a, there's potentially a device that can, can actually figure out what's going wrong. You know, you're given that sense of, and, and again, that sense of hope because it's a, it's a big Star Wars theme. Maybe right. we can get them back, even though they don't, they don't say that. No, but a line later on from Omega, they, they kind of yeah. hammer on that That's point. right. Well, see, and there's something that's going to also come up, come up here too uh, in a minute where there might be another character that we were, that, higher stakes i guess like we're all sort of resigned and not like crosshair but yeah if something were to happen to somebody else it might raise the stakes of needing to alter that chip or figure that chip out in a faster way yeah i agree with you so it's at this point that tech uh quite dismissively tells echo that no critical systems were compromised he's awesome and then the ship immediately lurches out of hyperspace 
in a nosedive toward a moon orbiting a large blue unnamed planet. And then he gives my favorite line of the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. episode, actually. More yeah. in, in more of his unfiltered way about okay. uh, life support being unaffected. It's not affecting life support. We're fine. We're fine. Yeah. We're fine. <laughs> and then Hunter, are you kidding me? So good. Echo tells us that a power capacitor is blown and they need to land immediately, and so everyone straps in for the crash. The atmosphere is thick and black, and neither Echo nor Tech can see anything. After wrestling with the controls for a bit, the viewport suddenly clears and we can see the cratered surface of a moon below. It looks a lot like our own moon. So there's this whole sequence in the crash with Wrecker, you know, going back to that sort of simplicity we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then he looks over and sees Omega and she's feeding off of his energy. And he quickly like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. And I missed it the first watch. Like I I caught it when he banged his head. Yeah, I got Uh, that right away. I I got it as a comedic beat, right? I did too. He's the he's Lunk, right? He's that. Yeah, character. absolutely. He's the. Um, so I took I only took it as a comedic beat, and yeah. now I'm now I'm now I can't sleep. I think we've all kind of <laughs> we've all kind of hit the same sort of like oh, I don't I still don't know how I mean I, Rector is my least favorite. He was you know that right from the get go, and this just reinforces that. And I have to remember that the show was not necessarily written just for me, so. Yes, he is comic relief, and yes, this was a comic relief moment, whether I liked it or not, which I have to say, this one just reminds me, you know, like, that simplicity, while it's an asset in combat, right? Because like he says, I just want to blow stuff up. Great. But outside of that, like I said before, he's a child in in an adult body, Mm -hmm. and I think that's a strength for him in how he connects with Omega, but... Outside of that, I actually find it pretty annoying. We'll get into it in a minute, but but that pain in his head is he ostensibly could be the most formidable foe they have. Absolutely. Um, and to see his I just it's so dark this this is so dark, this episode in particular, that I, I, I go, Wow, they could really do something dark here. And literally have these guys go one at a time. Uh, until they, you know, until they find a solution, there could be a second season of trying to regroup them all to get whatever. everybody back. But yeah, it could be just Hunter and Omega at the end, you know, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm a little different than you. I really like Wrecker a lot. I really like him. He, he's kind of like a, a very simple version of the thing for me. Oh yeah, uh, from the I can Fantastic see that. Yeah, Four. I can see that. But um, and and such the sort of the childlike wonder and the endearing the innocence of the of his like i want to smash things though could be so tragic yeah 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 to, to get this 66 madness happening. well i mean let's look at it let, let me put the uh, of mice and men filter on that yeah you know what i mean like lenny yeah. is not a bad person he's just who he is and unfortunately when he gets going there's no stopping right. him tell me about the rabbits Jim. right Right. Yeah. No, it's uh it's it's very true. For those of you who've never read of Mice and Men, it's a absolute classic. I I absolutely despised it in high school, but uh I've mm-hmm. since learned I've since learned to really appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny what we were forced to read in high school. I know. We read as adults and went, Oh, that was actually brilliant. I still hate Catcher in the Rye. 
yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Anyway, we go there. Mm-hmm. All right. The wings of the Havoc Marauder fold up just in time as the ship lands hard, sliding several meters before coming to rest on the landing struts. After checking to make sure that everyone is all right, the clones set about to determine what to do next. Echo remarks that the storm that they just flew is getting worse and it's knocking out their comms. Which really, okay, but really, if they weren't knocked out, who are you going to call? I think Hmm. that factors in later, though. It does factor in later, and I know that it's to establish that, but it's just like, wait a minute, you guys are already on the run. Who are you going to (laughs) call? You know what I mean? We've already missed Rex, so we don't know where he is yet. Um, And the one guy that we did know has taken off on a shuttle with his family. So I just thought that kind of like, oh, a little contrived. (laughs) Tech informs the others that he suspects that the power capacitor was damaged in the firefight on Salukamai but that they also happen to have a spare on board. Omega pulls out a metal crate asking, is it in here? While everyone else stops and stares at her in complete silence. Not understanding what's going on, Omega asks, what? Hunter solemnly reveals that the crate is Crosshair's weapons kit, while Wrecker breaks the tension by saying, I miss him. And there's some banter about Wrecker being shot by Crosshair, which Wrecker appears to reminisce about with a fondness. So, and this here reinforces the fact that he's about to complain about the pain in his head. When getting shot by crosshair is something that he's like, yeah, that really hurt, you know? Yeah, he did, yeah. There's something that that just reinforces the fact that what's going on in his head is just, oh, I'm so scared, so worried. (laughs) For me, it's also, you know, this picks up on the whole, again, dipping into the replacement idea that, everybody's you know it's all eyes on omega and she's standing there with his with crosshair's gear correct and they're just kind of staring at her and it's like oh he's not here but you are and so it's that by the end she's in his bunk yeah 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 but it's it's cool though because do you get the impression that at this time they're actually kind of mourning the loss whereas in the previous episode hunter especially he was angry about the about crosshair him turning on them well, he is the one that says, hey, he shot you. So he's still trying to justify his yeah. anger or, you know, because, because he has to feel some type of way about it, probably, you know, deeper, you know, that that had to have been his friend on some level. Yeah. Tech interjects with the idea that Crosshair's actions were influenced by his inhibitor chip. Echo looks towards Omega and asks, it can do that? And Omega tells them that's what it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. Wrecker posits, so it wasn't Crosshair's fault. But Hunter refocuses the conversation by getting everyone back on task with fixing the ship. That's right. We switch to an exterior shot of the cloning facility on Camino. Inside the facility, we see Crosshair on a table in a medical bay. He's laying inside a large scanner reminiscent of an MRI machine. It's the same machine we saw in Episode 1 that was used to reinforce Crosshair's programming. The table slides out from the scanner, and Crosshair sits up as AZ-3 reports that his vitals are optimal. Crosshair orders the droid to go away. In an adjacent room, Nala Say and Admiral Tarkin, or I should just say Tarkin at this point, because that's going to come up in a bit. Tarkin uh, watches. She tells him that Crosshair is responding favorably to the procedure. As Tarkin rebuffs her by saying, let's see if he stays that way. That's right. The line ties directly to what Clone Force 99 were pondering on the ship about it wasn't his fault. The message to us as viewers is clearly one of he can be saved. 
Now, I'm more inclined to believe that Omega's comment to Crosshair in the holding facility back in episode one was more about her uh, speaking to the knowledge of how the, in- uh, the inhibitor chip works and that it was, uh, it was having a uh, more pronounced effect on him. So mm-hmm. the, the question of uh, force sensitivity, it's still kind of in question for me. Talking about Omega and her comment to Crosshair back in the holding facility on Camino in episode one, we talked about the musical cue where we thought she might be force sensitive and I'm kind of at a point now where I'm second guessing that and I'm, I'm questioning if this is just, you know, clone intuition and her inherent knowledge that, you know, she's on the inside of how the, the inhibitor chips actually work. Well, working with Nalase, she would be privy to a lot of that knowledge. Yeah, and I mean, it, it comes out and, you know, of course, she's not offering it, right? It's always it's always a direct, when they ask her and she's like, well, yeah. <laughs> like So she she shares that that uh, unfilteredness that tech does, I guess, but only when, you know, asked. <laughs> no, it's very true. There are a lot of other little things that I think are, are leading me down the uh, Force-sensitive path, especially the, uh, the giving... Uh, there's a there's she's got this intuition so we'll see i'm not we'll rule i am definitely not ruling it out it, it is a yeah. strong potential but then again with the way that this episode kind of lays the foundation for what we know is to come in other star wars properties right i kind of wonder if there's something else going on in place of or in addition to i guess we can say it that way mm-hmm. no it's it, uh, exactly there, there could be a whole sort of new thing, uh, yeah. new types of abilities like that. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. From the shadows, another Imperial officer approaches and addresses Tarkin. His name is Vice Admiral Rampart, and we learn that he is the officer responsible for the implementation of the chain code program. We also learn that he and Tarkin share the same enthusiasm toward the establishment of the new order that is the Empire. Holy glossed over it last episode but he was the the giant hologram on uh, Selakmai that was instructing people to trade their credits in for imperial credits right and register for your chain code today oh, and, i totally missed that part yeah so did i i had to go back and check it out because i i thought uh, i didn't know whether that guy was from legends or whether he was i so want to say he's a new character character. he's totally a new character. yeah he's a new character 100%. So that brings me to something I thought was really cool, and I, I want to talk about it for a second. We, we talked about it before in The Clone Wars, how rank structure is not necessarily cut and dry in Star Wars. That's right. Um, and it's even more convoluted in the Imperial military with the blending of, particularly with uniforms and stuff, right? I mean, you saw Han Solo a la his mud trooper uniform. And I mean, short of the uh, the chest armor and the helmet, you take all that off, he looks like an Imperial naval officer. So there's this real blurring of the lines. So it makes it difficult to sort of figure out who people are. And the only reason I know that it's Vice Admiral Rampart is the descriptive audio told me so. Because right. they, they don't actually tell you that he's a Vice Admiral. But it gets a little more convoluted because if you look at his uh, rank plaque, right, Rampart's rank plaque... <laughs> We're going to find it here. It's a single line of uh, of pips. And his rank plaque, depending on what sources you're looking at, Rampart's rank plaque would suggest that he's actually a rear admiral, right. not a vice admiral. 
But then it gets more convoluted because, again, depending on the source, and and I'm leaning into Legends a lot here, particularly around the the role-playing game, Code Cylinders also come into play in terms of rank and security clearance. Well, he's carrying four Code Cylinders, well, that's the same as Tarkin, so, you know, in some sources, four Code Cylinders would only be a full General or a full Admiral or higher, so there's there's some inconsistency there and i don't know yeah. do i take the the descriptive audio at face value that he's a vice admiral or do i take take the rank plaque at face value and he's a rear admiral so i think he's promoted in this episode he gets promoted at the end of the episode right so i mean so the instead of altering the uh, animation you know uh that subtly they i think that that's his model and maybe the rank might change did you notice the rank change on Tarkin's I did so they added the yellow I wanted to say that this is the first canonical reference to Tarkin as a governor governor yeah absolutely absolutely right and the governors you'll recall from the little speech in in A New Hope are are who are in power that's right the regional governors will assume control of their systems after they dissolve the senate which is coming up in that's right 10 to 15 years so yeah you, you see you see how uh, Tarkin's gone from sort of military commander to high-level uh, politician, if you will, like high-level, yeah. high like, you know, ranking member of this uh, establishment. If you look at on the, in the role-playing games, I think it's the Imperial Sourcebook, there's like a, a tree of the emperor's power. And you, you, you when you look at it, you see how high Tarkin is actually on that tree. Yeah, he's like one or two steps removed. I mean, yeah. you know, one or two steps removed from the absolute emperor. And yeah, the and he's, a, he's a nasty character too. The uh, the line from Leia about Vader being on Tarkin's leash that mm-hmm. has to that has to be a clear indication of how much political influence he has. Absolutely, there are very very few people in Star Wars that can actually hold sway over Vader. Vader, release him. Right. So Tarkin's rank plaque. I went back and I actually watched episode one just to make sure that I, what I thought I was seeing was what I was seeing. And uh, for the listeners out there, guys, honestly, depending on what source you look up, and I mean, just do a simple Google search for uh, Imperial military rank pins and the number of images that you're going to get that conflict with each other. And you're going to see Navy terms and Army terms, and they're going to conflict with each other. So... Tarkin's rank plaque back in uh, episode one, it consists of uh, two horizontal rows of square pips. Each row is six pips each. The top row is entirely made of blue and the lower is entirely red. And like you said, Hank, in this episode, the lower one has changed because now it's three red and three yellow. That's right. So that's a clear, he's been promoted uh, and elevated. Yeah, so cool. The rank thing really had me like, ooh, it was kind of a little fanboy moment for me and it just brings us closer and closer so you know i can i can envision just like rogue one uh these things the way we overlapped from revenge of the sith yep like it we're going to perhaps one day overlap right into a new hope you know like rebels does that close and it does certainly rogue one does it but in an animated form we get to see another you know there's other things going on in the galaxy at the moment of the battle of, of, of Scarif and Rogue One. So that's it's, right. It's, it gets you, you know, it's a many spoked wheel that we get to see all these approaches to it. It's kind of nice. I, I really, really like it. Well, I'm really enjoying seeing the, the birth of the, 
the empire the empire like, well, yeah i mean we saw the actual physical birth of the empire yes like, literally padme gives birth right and it's yeah like, yeah know, at that moment but it's it's now we're watching it become this monstrous child oh absolutely and to see it grow and and be yeah, nurtured yeah. and and how it's nurtured and just you know that was one of the big questions about you know Tarkin's character arc from Clone Wars through to A New Hope and it's like Tarkin's this like you know celebrated military naval commander and you know you, you don't get a sense of like oh he's this big evil genius but to see him slowly just I guess that you could say drink the Kool-Aid or or eat the Jello and and actually mm-hmm. just totally embrace it really just speaks to the idea of, you know, people who have power crave more. Oh, everybody out there, check out the Tarkin novel. Oh, yeah. It's, it's spectacular. And he's really good in the comics. Um, they, there's a an issue of the Vader comic where they pair Tarkin with Vader. And Tarkin is one of the galaxy's, like, sort of supreme game hunters. They, they, they sort of get into the... He comes from a culture oh, of, wow, yeah. of that. And so he ostensibly tests vader by hunting him in in one of the comics and it's it's more of a draw than you would think bro it's it's serious yeah i'll find a link to that comic and i'll throw it out there for everybody rampart looking at crosshair asks if he's the enhanced clone from the report to which nala say confirms that he is tarkin then asks rampart about the status of something called project war mantle and rampart tells him that it is on schedule and that the top recruits are there, ready to begin their training under their new commander. All right, Project Warmantle. Oh, yeah. Project Warmantle was one of the projects that came up on the computer screen on Scarif when Jyn Erso and Cassian Andor were searching for the Death Star plans. Yes, sir. So we get the impression that a lot of the stuff that we just presumed, that's, I guess, again, dipping into Legends content, that somehow the clones are going to be as the clones are phased out, the the senior clones are going to take up that sort of training uh, role for these uh, new recruits. Something that we're going to see play out a little bit more on this episode. Escorted by Tarkin and Rampart, a crosshair and Nalase walk down a corridor as Rampart espouses the need for an increase in soldiers to ensure a strong ruling government. Nalase asserts that the Kaminoan cloning facility can meet the task but Rampart isn't having it. He says that sustaining a vast engagement isn't something the clones should do alone, and there are other ways of producing loyal soldiers. Entering a hangar, the group is met by a squad of four soldiers, but these are not clones. Two men and two women, all adorned in blacked-out Phase Three clone armor with their helmets slung under their arms. Rampart introduces them as the Empire's first elite squad and goes on about how they are the top human soldiers recruited from across the galaxy. Rampart fantasizes that more squads like this one trained by veteran clones would make for a formidable army, and Tarkin agrees, stating that he sees promise in the idea. Meanwhile, back at the crash site, Echo and Tech set about to make repairs to the Havoc Marauder. The atmosphere isn't breathable, so they wear breath masks. Removing the appropriate panel, They replace the damaged capacitor with the spare one. On the nose of the ship, outside the light of their torches, a reptilian creature can be seen scurrying over the cockpit unnoticed. 
A faint snarling noise can be heard in the distance, and Echo turns to shine his torch in the direction of the sound with a, what was that? Tech, too engrossed in repairing the ship, ignores the question, and Echo moves off on his own to investigate the noise. A short distance from the cockpit, Echo spots a cluster of hollow, tube-like protrusions in the ground. He studies them for a moment before he hears an even louder rustling. Spotting what appears to be claw marks on the hull of the ship, Echo calls Tech to come and look at the damage. He closes the panel containing the capacitor and goes to meet Echo, completely unaware that the reptilian creature was hanging upside down from the wing, watching him all the time. <laughs> and as the two clones go off to investigate the source of the claw marks, the reptilian creature rips the newly replaced power capacitor from the ship and runs off into the darkness. <laughs> Not yet, it doesn't. How'd I miss that? Because it doesn't run yet, because Omega is about to see it run across the windshield when they go back inside to say something's wrong. Oh, yeah, it doesn't run away, but it runs off, it runs out, off of, out of out frame. frame. Yeah, yeah, okay. Out of frame. Out of frame, yeah. I thought I'd miss something, but no, no, you're right. <laughs> Inside the shuttle, Omega plays with a breath mask, turning it on and off, while Wrecker paces by, clutching his head in pain. Hunter asks, what's wrong with you? And Wrecker says he must have hit his head in the crash. So we know that he, he absolutely did hit his head in the crash. And, uh, <laughs> and we know that he's really good at pain. So this is a problem for me. It is a problem. And I think we all kind of hit the same sort of like suspicions with this one because they keep going back to it. Yeah. Yeah. What it does is now it's not it like, okay, so Crosshair puts sort of the military dynamic of the group at, in jeopardy in terms of control, in terms of command, yeah. in terms of yeah. introducing a bad guy. But what Wrecker having a problem with his chip might do is put omega in harm's way in a, in a very grave way so it, it's it's a higher stakes chip to activate if you will no i uh, agree it's it, from a storytelling capacity it's it's like uh, i don't want it to happen it's tragic you know tech talking about it's, 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 a, it's a nice race though you know like they're racing towards tech trying to figure out the device and them all starting to break down potentially probably. having that yeah and that, you know, that is talking about breaking down, uh, that comes up again towards the end of the episode when they talk sure about does. the genetic material. So sure does. does that have an impact on, you know, clones who are already in existence? Maybe, maybe not. Good question. With their I, accelerated growth, it could be. Well, this well is it, right? right? Who knows? That's going to come up in my point very, very shortly, actually. I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. I said, you know, if this was, if it were the real world and, and this guy came you know, I, I saw him hit his head like that. And the way the, again, the amount of attention that the episode places on this, cause they come back to it a couple of more times. I'd be like, is this just a bump on the head or is there like, is there a brain bleed? Is there something going on here? And so, for that well, that's what I mean. And that's where immediately where I went to was like, Oh, has he like turned something on or jarred something? So, like you say, Hank, it could get very grave very quickly. Right, and and this is this is very uh, much darker show than we've seen before. And, and it it's is been fairly dark. And this is very this is darker than than anything Star Wars has done before. And let's just for a second pause. And and outside of Crosshair, who's got that creepy crosshair? I don't know if it's a tattoo or a scar. Wrecker has got you know a half burned off head cataract like he is the scariest looking dude in the squad mm -hmm. so i mean mm -hmm. if he if he turns like that's going to be horrific yeah he's missing an eye <laughs> he's the size of a hulk we've seen him push three tanks off a cliff yeah we've seen him i mean <laughs> man yeah 
Manhandling yeah. droids for workouts. Yo, exactly, yeah. Doing uh, bicep curls with a gonk droid. <laughs> That's right. And that level of, when if you turn, you know, like you were saying before of Mice and Men, if you turn that level of innocence, yeah. if you turn a lawful good character into a lawful evil character, yeah. that innocence becomes incredibly dangerous. Oh, yeah. You get Frankenstein strangling a girl and not understanding it's not a flower to be plucked. We just watched, sorry, it's a tangent here, but we just watched Brightburn the other night. Yes. And that is exactly what's going on yes. there. Yeah. Yeah. Echo and Tech turn up to report to Hunter that the new capacitor is in place, but now other systems are starting to fail. Echo mentions that something is damaging the hull of the ship. And just as Hunter asks him to narrow that down, everything on the ship goes dark. The stomping of footsteps on the outer hull can be heard from above. Omega, sitting in the cockpit, looks out the viewport and is startled as the reptilian creature darts across the glass. The four-legged, long-tailed reptilian creature now pulsates with a blue-green energy wave that travels from its head to its tail. Wrecker blurts out, What was that? And Omega enthusiastically describes the creature, noting that it also ran off with the part. Mm -hmm. A quick look at the view screen by Echo confirms that the part is indeed gone. There's a little bit of Orabesh there, and I got it. Yeah, so the, the readout actually says, Capacitor not found. <laughs> Tech surmises that the creature must be an Ordo Moon Dragon, a species that feeds on raw energy. So, okay. do you want to talk about uh, Ordo Moon Dragons for a minute? I, I kind of do. So do I. Uh, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, red pill or blue pill? Yeah, I know. I, ha uh, I have both <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay. I wonder All if right. yours are the same as mine. So, let's let's... Well, let's so get the like, let's get the easy one out of the way. Right, Ordo is a Mandalorian planet. Oh, I was thinking Candorous Ordo. Well, let's. I kind of have an order to my madness. Sure, so. sure. So let's start with Ordo as the Mandalorian world. Yep, let's do that. Recently, in in canon. Yep. I I couldn't tell you if it's a comic or a novel, but uh, Dryden Voss has visited the world Ordo. Okay. And he's stolen a sacred Mandalorian lance. Interesting. It might, it might be the one that's in Solo. And Ordo is blaming a clan from Crow Nest, right? Yeah. Which we know, which we know is the the clan Wren is where Crow, uh, inhabiting Crow Nest. That's and right. Then it goes. The story goes a little further, and this is a little off track. But Dryden Voss also steals Crow Nest's sacred Mandalorian emblem and stuff. Interesting. In canon, very recently within the lore, but so that's the planet Ordo. It's much like Crow Nest. It's much like okay. It's, it's, a, it's a planet. Uh, colonized by Mandalorians and is one of their inhabited worlds and what they have many systems. And then it's also a character. F and, and this is, this is where we get real cool before Candorous Ordo. Yeah. There's a character called Ordo Scarata. Okay. And Ordo Scarata in legends is uh, one of the Republic commandos. Yeah, and interesting. In, in the legends novels uh, sort of revolving around the game. Yeah. Uh, I don't know a lot about the game. I don't know if the characters were named specifically. No, they had, they had like a torch, uh fixer and the third guy right. who I, I, I uh, scorch name. scorch fixer. And the third one, I cannot remember. Right. So uh, this fellow was part of null squad. The were the first clones cloned yep. from Django Fett by the common Owens. And I, I don't know how many there were. Yeah. This particular Ordo Scarata was, was clone null 11. Okay. And was trained personally in a small group by Django Fett himself, right, right. who in, instilled in them the Mandalorian ways. 
Okay. So we're we're still in that whole wheelhouse, you know, like I how, do, yeah, yeah. It totally makes sense to me. Into the 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 Mandalorian homeworld and yeah. the uh, the Jedi homeworld in Mandalore. This is another that level dive into that. So while training Ordo Scarata, Jango Fett realizes that this guy is is the truth. He's he's so such a he's um, right off the a chip off the old block, if you will. And right, names right. him Ordo from Null Eleven after Candrus Ordo. Yes. And that's where we get into to your your dive, which is a character from the Knights of the Old Republic game. Yeah. And was actually at one point the Mandalore. Yeah, it was Mandalore, yeah, for a while. It was Mandalore yeah. for a while. So this just the mention of a friggin' moon dragon. We go off the rails with another deep dive into Mandalorian history. So you definitely got way more out of that than I did because for whatever reason, when I searched Ordo, I just could not come up with that level of detail. But I'm going to throw a theory at you and and I hope the listeners chime in on this one because this one, this one kind of, it's, it's a completely different direction, but I want to, I want to frame it this way. I personally think that the Ordo moon dragon is an invasive species. I don't think it's native to this moon. And I think Ordo is a reference to planets with the Ord moniker, like Ord Mantel. So if you look up, you know, Ord planets, there's a whole big list of them. Of course, it's all legends. But Ord, if you dive in on that, Ord actually stands uh, for Ordnance Regional Depot. So these Ord planets served as military outposts at the height of the Republic around 13,000 BBY. So long, long time before Knights of the Old Republic, long before the movies. On the planet, we don't see any signs of civilization. But when later on, when Omega goes into the burrow, we see all these you know, machine parts and, and other bits of tech that are laying around. So you know, if you think of the Ordo moon dragon as being an invasive species, much like rats on a ship coming across from Europe to America right. that they could have migrated on starships and could have established colonies basically on these ordinance original depots. And that's yeah, what I like on a crash ship, sort of like a, like a rat or. A, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. And like that's kind of, that's kind of where I went with it. I think it's just an invasive species that is there that stowed away in a starship. I think it's, I think we're, I think we're super close. So, the idea that these clones are an accelerated version or an early version of of clones that yeah. are special. Uh, the Empire wants them. Yep. The Kaminoans want them. Yeah. Well, the Kaminoans still keep calling them property. Property. And especially when they need them for this new template for their Phase 3 clone, which they keep talking about. Doesn't that change the dynamic, though? Like, I... I just assumed from the my my viewing experience of the films that the the Grand Army of the Republic was a bought and paid for army, but the Kaminoans keep going back to you it's know kind of like a rental. Yeah, it's a rental army. So is the Republic government paying a premium for every killed trooper? <laughs> I kind of have a weird little sort of side issue too at one point, which yeah. is why doesn't the Empire just we're taking over? Um, Right. So there's, and there's another thing that we understand, we have to understand here that there are more people that are more powerful, uh, ostensibly. Right. Not than the emperor 
uh, personally, but in terms of the Empire. Yeah. Because in, in The Mandalorian, you'll recall, we had, which we speculated might be a Night Sister, we had that, that I can't recall her name, but the character that was the head of a shipbuilding guild. That's right. Right? Who Who made, you know, ostensibly lots and lots of credits off of oh yeah the, the you know so yeah we see we see the empire not you know just seizing assets we see them actually going well we have to pay for clones and we have to pay for ships and ships are cheaper than clones so and when when you get the impression like why don't they just seize <laughs> would would that mean like a cool what if just popped into my head what if the empire tried to fight the clones uh, wow <laughs> you know well, legends I guess maybe that's the situation you might get in who, who are the clones loyal to oh man this is one aspect of legends that was thoroughly you know sort of um, fleshed out with uh, these sort of loyalty arrangements where we talked about it before like Corellia, for example was a was a semi-independent world that still you know, fell under the empire, but they were kind of left alone because of their contribution to uh, shipbuilding. Right. Same thing with Sinar or Sinar fleet systems, the the makers of the TIE fighter, you know, it's a big corporate entity that was basically allowed right. more or less carte blanche as long as they kept chugging out the war machine. So again, with these uh, Disney era properties, you know, you, you know that they're going to mine as they have already done, they're going to mine sort of the best aspects of legends. And, and I think, you know, you and I have already agreed on this one, Hank, that we just, we love the idea of, of oh. watching the empire unfold politically speaking. It's super cool. And I'm really curious to see, you know, what elements of, of legends are going to come forward into this unexplored or at least visually unexplored era of star Wars. So who knows? I think the idea that, that Ordo is a planet, now all but canonized yeah um and then the link to the the character ordo scarata yeah uh who is one of the the prime clones if you will yeah and if we're if we're into a story now where there are clones that are not degrading uh as per yeah nala say in the very you know uh, um maybe these are those null clones maybe that's our maybe that's our our nice link in there certainly a, a bigger dip into the Mandalorian pool because you, you get uh Candorous and you get all of clan Ordo and then you, your Ordo thing, which I didn't even come at. That's a, that's a brilliant stroke too. So yeah. somewhere in there is a really deep pool of, of, of stuff that they've gone with. And, and uh, I kind of thought we were watching a kid's cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. There's no denying that this one comes out the gate and it's, and it's pointed squarely at, you know, uh teen, teen uh, uh, and older uh but you still have these elements that are still you know kid friendly yeah exactly yeah uh like sort of lauren po pointed out they, they they have to find a way to address these big issues because kids yeah. are going to watch this oh of course they are so they've got to they've got to they've got to do things like what crosshair is about to do right tastefully so at this point hunter uh tasks echo and tech to get the other systems back online in order's record to stay here because of his head injury. Wrecker protests saying that he's fine, but Hunter firmly tells him, you're staying. So Omega immediately and enthusiastically volunteers to go with him. And at first Hunter rebuffs her saying it's too dangerous. 
Unshaken by Hunter's concern, Omega asserts that she's part of the squad now, and Hunter acquiesces. Back on Camino, the new elite squad recruits undergo a medical examination. During the exam, they talk about the war being over and question who's left to fight now. The male recruit, who is designated ES-01, mentions that with the Empire, he gets fed and paid and has a roof over his head, and that's more than the Republic ever did for him. In a darkened control room, Tarkin, Rampart, and Prime Minister Lamassu observe a real-time hologram of the elite squad troops. Lamassu politically fights for the continuation of his clone program by asserting that conscripts will never reach the same level of military proficiency as the clones. Rampart fights right back with, Skills can be taught, adding that the loyalty of those who willingly recruit is what I see tremendous value in. Tarkin then orders that the elite squad, under the command of Crosshair, should be sent to Onderon to wipe out Saw Gerrera's camp. It's the exact same mission he sent Clone Force 99 on, the mission which, in Tarkin's assessment, they failed. Neither man notice that Lamassu has quietly left the room. But not before giving uh, Rampart a bit of a sideways glance. He does, and I think that speaks to Lamassu's... We talked about this before... Uh, you know, they're they're really up against the ropes. Like, their entire organization is on the verge of collapse, and there's really kind of not a whole lot they can do about it. Right. Which could right. go back to episode one, why the Coruscant Guard is there. Like, yeah, so that, you know, just what you said, Hank, about why doesn't the Empire seize control? Maybe that's what they're staging for with having the Coruscant Guard there. Certainly. Uh, there's another thing here, though. We already have an endpoint. Yeah. We know from the Mandalorian that that Camino cloner was rolled right into the Empire. Yeah. So at some point, Tarkin is going to make the play. Yeah. And this whole facility will just become part. You know, leaving Rampart there on Camino at the end of the episode does really work towards setting that up. Yeah. That there is an Imperial presence there permanently. Like maybe even if they're just there to, you know, take as much... Information, technology, yeah, equipment, whatever they need yeah. to maybe yeah, move yeah. it to Exegol or, or what have you. Oh, right, right. What but, was the uh, project called, the contingency project that the Emperor left was in the uh, Battlefront 2 Oh, game. my Lord. Uh, Forge uh, or something like that. Uh, uh, it's, uh, oh, it's like Hellfire or Scorched, <laughs> scorched Earth or it's it something, something like that. Wow, we're, off, we're awful experts. But that, that <laughs> doctrine, I'm wondering if, cloning facilities at Camino were destroyed during that because it was about destroying their own infrastructure so that it couldn't be turned. Yeah. It couldn't be them turned against them. That's right. Their legs back on Exegol. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the ramifications of what's being set up here are going to be felt all the way forward, you know, 30, far, far 35, reaching. 40 years in the future. This episode of fandom power is brought to you in part by collectors, platoon.ca collectors, platoon.ca Organizers of the annual Toronto Collector's Platoon Toy Show. Check out collectorsplatoon.ca, the Canadian home of Ian's display accessories, specializing in action figure stands for figures of all scales. Visit collectorsplatoon.ca today. You're listening to Fandom Power.
Here's the other thing too, right? I mean, the 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 Kaminoans themselves. I mean, again, it's legends, but I mean, they're cloners, so you know that they are they are themselves genetically tweaked. They've genetically tweaked themselves. Like we don't see their species outside of prequel era Star Wars. You know, are we gonna are, are we gonna get some? Are they gonna be wiped out of existence? Are the Kaminoans as a species so small that the ones that are on Camino are it? Who knows? Well, that's, yeah, really. Um, and, I mean, we only have, you don't see Kaminoans, Kaminoans? Damn. We Cloners. Don't see them, <laughs> we, don't see, we don't see them running around like. That's what I mean. Dozens and dozens and dozens of them. We, we actually only really focus on two. Um, three if you include the, uh, right. the other female from Attack of the Clones and and some in the comics certainly yeah, uh, yeah. but not you know you don't get the idea that this is their home world that this is all of the you know there's a vast species of these clones no no on, you know it's like this facility that's owned by this species that we know very little about except for that I guess they are called Kaminoans because, and they are on the planet Kamino which we know has been right. removed from the data like and that's it's the thing, yeah. Planet, yeah, right? secret. So, Not uh, in any yeah. any galactic database. Right. And removed from the Jedi database from the inside. So, you know, how long has it been removed? Yeah. Uh, was it Siphodius? Was it Dooku before he turned? Was we it, don't you know. know. Wow. You yeah. Know? Yeah, cool. The Camino, particularly Prime Minister Lamassu, he mentions it a couple times previously how you know, uh, in the first episode, you know, Chancellor Palpatine has always been very supportive and, and Tarkin corrects him, you know, Emperor Palpatine. So it, there's a, there's a very, very specific shift where like, oh, so at one time Lama Su had the ear of Palpatine, but that's not the case anymore. Like now you're going through Tarkin. Right. Deal with it. And I mean, he knows that like Lama Su knows that I don't have the direct, I don't have a direct line to him anymore. So what the hell am I going to do? Yeah, so back on the unnamed moon, Hunter tracks the moon dragon while Omega follows. She asks Hunter if she could learn to track like he does, and he tells her that it's an enhanced skill and that they all have one. He names everyone but Crosshair, but Omega fills in Hunter's omission and tells him, you shouldn't be angry with him. It's not his fault. Hunter struggles with the fact that he left Crosshair behind, and Omega, ever the optimist, tells him, then we'll find a way to get him back somehow. Then the two move off further into the darkness. Coming back to that replacement, you know, uh, theme and and dealing with sort of the emotional fallout of what's happened. And now, you know, Hunter's still, he is grieving. He's grieving the loss and he's internalizing that, you know, like it's his fault. Yeah. And they couldn't have hammered home the idea that clones are brothers more. Oh my God. Yeah. Seven seasons. I know. Yeah. And, and now we have. And this was, I was explaining this to a, a friend of mine who was asking some questions about this uh, this morning. And yeah. I was saying, well, the, the difference between these clones and other clones, irrespective of the malfunctioning chip or not, is, yeah. is the level of free will. So when they disobey orders, it's about a choice. It's about, it's about, and with free will comes uh, morality. Yep. So the clones that are following orders blindly, uh, uh, just adhering to their programming, are they're not making moral choices. And so the, that's the difference with this bad batch is that we see them make moral choices and not necessarily the right moral choices because there is a moral, there's a, there's a scale. And so when you remove 
programming and you you put in the free will there is some part of the personality that's going to be either good or bad there and i yeah. think that explains crosshair and i think that it explains i think you i think that'll play a lot into into how these characters deal with their chips well i agree with you you know and as much as this episode let's let's just lay it right out this episode does set up the notion that at some point we're going to try and get crosshair back and that might be the long play for the whole season is to redeem him because that is another a uh, prime Star Wars theme. This episode proves just how ruthless Crosshair is. And you say there's a choice. And even if they can redeem him and, and deactivate the chip, I think there's a part of him that may in fact choose to stay with the Empire. And I think it plays into what I was saying about morality and that, that yeah. like uh, a good guy is a good guy and a bad guy is a bad guy. Like, right. like if, if that's your alignment, certainly alignments can be changed but if that's your alignment and uh programming is removed and you're introduced to free will then you're going to tend towards your alignment i would think. yeah and we certainly i mean unless the procedure that that the empire is doing on crosshair is creating you know is additional programming it, it, it seems like it's you know the, the clones were never like bent on murder right and he seems sort of more bent on you know like well, this, he even, he says it plain as day, right. you know, why am I in charge? Because, you know, I'm the guy that I, will... Yeah, and, but that, and, and instead of the uh, idea of winning the day or... Well, you know, at the same time, though, there's probably no compunction with killing... You wouldn't, you wouldn't let six droids go. No, that's true, and I mean... It, so if you're, if you're reduced to the base, I, and, 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 and if you could separate yourself from that, and these are just targets, yep. just like droids... Uh, now, while we feel uh, some empathy and 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 want to sympathize with the the humanity of the characters, perhaps yeah. that's what the programming does. Because yeah. I, I I thought about that. Why is it why is it making them super aggressive towards everyone, and not just against Jedi? not just military targets? Right. It seems to be so. There's like there's more to Order sixty six, if you will. Whether it's a reset to your original, just base programming, or but it seems to be uh, they're much more aggressive and yeah because violent. the line the line from Tarkin to Nalase back in the first episode was can it be strengthened or can it be enhanced and she just says yeah so it's like they're not they're not changing anything they're not inputting any new programming per se they're just right. reinforcing what's already there so when you say you talk about how dark this episode is and then you realize like oh the the capacity to murder civilians is in all of the clones yeah. Oh man. Well, it's an yeah. order given. He says yeah. eliminate the camp. That's right. Not right. eliminate specific targets. No, at the you're camp, right. Yep. Screw yep. the whole camp. That and is the we mission. Find ourselves, we find ourselves 35 years in the future. Uh, um, you know, at, at the village with Laura Santaka. Yeah. We ask ourselves how can how can a group of soldiers just gun down innocent villagers? And and there's your answer. Well, and there's that nature versus nurture thing in. You know, it seems to me that, you know, the, the First Order, whether at the at the behest of Palpatine or not, took a page from the Jedi playbook because, you know, as, as Finn, as it's laid out for us, First Order Stormtroopers are, are indoctrinated very early, like, very as early. children. Like the Jedi. Like the yeah, Jedi. like the Jedi. Yeah, yeah. or Mandalorian uh, yeah, Exactly, so there's a yeah. Trend, there's a trend of slave labor going on at Disney. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> 
So an Omicron-class shuttle streaks across the screen, and inside we see the elite squad standing ready for deployment. I kind of dug this scene just superficially in how it mimicked the uh, the First Order landing boats and the stormtroopers yep. standing holding one arm up like they're on the subway or on the bus. That's I right. thought that was kind of cool. ES-01 questions the decision to place Crosshair in charge. He posits that if clones are so efficient, then why is the Empire recruiting soldiers like them? In a display of what could only be described as alpha male posturing, ES-01 tells Crosshair that a change is coming and he should watch out. Enjoy being the commander for now. This guy is really set up to be that, uh, I presume wherever they recruited him, he was probably hot shit wherever he came from. It just doesn't measure up in this case. (laughs) Big fish, small pond. Yeah, really. In a jungle clearing on Onderon, a small force of Saw Gerrera's fighters, along with a few civilians, load some crates onto a shuttle. Interesting point about the shuttle. They call it a shuttle, but did anybody pick out that it's the same modified uh, LAAT gunship that the Coruscant police used on Coruscant? Hmm. Oh, good call. No, I did yeah, not. Yeah, that. same Very animation nice. model. Nice cut. One of the fighters tells the leader that uh, Saw is waiting for them at the rendezvous. The leader looks down at his data pad, noticing that their outer perimeter has been breached. But before he can issue any orders, a volley of blaster fire rings out. A bolt hits him in the chest, silencing him forever. The fighters mount a hasty defense, but a smoke canister obscures their line of sight, and the elite squad advances. This one's kind of neat. There's a, an interesting little visual cue for us. So the, the elite squad are wearing Phase 3 clone armor, and they're armed with clone uh, clone wars era weapons so the dc-17 rifle and the dc-17 pistols so up until now i don't know if you noticed this but uh what color are clone blaster bolts they're always blue and now they're now they are red so a nice little visual cue that hill question again for you yeah 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 back on the moon hunter and omega continue to track the moon dragon until Hunter sees a flashing light coming from between two rocks. It's the power capacitor. Beckoning Omega to stay under the cover of the rocks, Hunter moves to retrieve the part, but is ambushed by the moon dragon. The beast knocks him down and turns to run off with the capacitor in its mouth. In the fray, Hunter's breath mask has been knocked off, and he quickly is overcome by the noxious atmosphere, falling unconscious. Omega finds Hunter's mask and places it back on his face and tries to wake him, but he lays there unresponsive. She desperately calls for help on a comm link, but gets no response. There's the uh, effects of that storm that we talked about. Yeah, there it is. Seeing the dragon scurry off into one of the hollow tubes in the ground, Omega steals herself and takes up Hunter's pistol. She then vaults into the underground burrow to give chase. But not before she makes sure he's breathing and fine. That's right, yeah. Because you see the visual cue of, like, the breath inside that mask. Yeah, I mean, she's... So she's like, pretty okay. desperate there for a second where she's kind of doing the, you know, like trying to wake him up and then, you know, he's not going to wake up. So this is an interesting dynamic too, because as much as she, she's a child, she's an enhanced clone. Like I mean, finish the mission. Right. And so she automatically, you know, takes up the gun and she turns and just moves to carry on. Does this harken back to the first episode where she picked up the rifle and laid down suppressive fire so that they could make their getaway? Certainly, and in, in that one she was acting like a crosshair, and this one she's acting like Hunter, and 
Could yeah. be something to the the idea that we were talking about. Perhaps she's got a little bit of all of them in her. Yeah, yeah. And uh, hence the name. And Omega, yeah. Like throwing back to that Russian training, you know, next man picks up the gun. Yeah, first man takes up the rifle, second man takes up the, the rounds. When the first man falls, the second man picks up the gun. <laughs> I would not be surprised if her designation is 9905. Yeah, really. Meanwhile, on Onderon, the firefight rages on. It's a turkey shoot, and the rebel fighters are cut down ruthlessly. No one is safe, and even though the shuttle manages to get off the ground, a well-placed sniper shot through the pilot's chest sends it crashing back to the ground. And is this our first time seeing a flame trooper, like, in this era? I don't recall. See, they may have used flamethrowers in the Clone Wars, but I can't recall a specific instance of it. So it may very well be. The last remaining fighter and the terrified civilians debark the shuttle. Crosshair demands they give up Guerrera's location, and the fighter tells him that she doesn't know, but even if she did, she wouldn't tell him. And without so much as a blink, Crosshair executes her with his sidearm before he turns his attention to the civilians. He invites the civilians to share any information they might have on Saw, and when they have none to offer, he declares them of no use to the Empire and turns as if he intends to continue the execution. At this point, ES-01 challenges Crosshair, saying they signed up to be soldiers, not executioners. There's that morality coming to play again. That's right. Crosshair asks him if he's refusing an order. When he answers yes, Crosshair uses the moment to answer ES-01's earlier question about why he was placed in charge. Because I'm willing to do what needs to be done. He then summarily executes ES-01 with the assertion, good soldiers follow orders. And now everybody has to have a conversation with their kids. <laughs> well, they don't show so the shot on screen. Much. No, that's true. Blaster, and you see him fall. That's right. So, you know, true to Disney, you don't see him die on screen. You just see the aftermath. Yeah. But prior to that, when he's about to execute that first trooper, yeah, he's cold in that moment. Oh, my God, yeah. Because he says the line as she's dropping, I believe you. That's right. And so this is my, this is where I kind of latched onto that idea that, you know what, even if they can get to him, there's this, this interaction that he has with the other uh, elite squad troops and with Saw's fighters, I don't think he's coming back. Yeah, you know, really, push comes to shove. I mean, yeah, we want him to come back. We want him to redeem. But I don't think it's there. No, probably not. Um, I mean, they sort of set him up. I, I have to go back and watch the original run, but um, they sort of set him up to be a little bit darker than the rest of them anyway. Yeah, certainly, like we said before, he is the uh, uh, coldest, un, uh, like non-emotive. Right. And, you know, initially you're like, oh, that's that's the sniper mentality. Yeah, yeah, cold right. and calculated. Right, so. It's also, you know you know, the, you know, murder, <laughs> cold and calculating. The true story. So Crosshair uh, orders the remaining squad members to finish the mission, which they do mowing down the, the four civilians. So back in the burrow, Omega under torchlight follows the tunnels uh, that we presume are made by the Ordo moon dragon until she comes into a larger cavern that's littered with mechanical parts. She sees the capacitor and she tries to retrieve it. But the dragon roars up from behind her, and she turns to face it, dropping the part. Meanwhile, Hunter has come around, and he hears the raucous from underground. 
He calls out to Omega, but his call is unanswered because at that moment, Omega is face to face with the dragon, blaster pistol in hand, she steadies herself for what's coming. Hearing Hunter's call, the dragon actually turns away from Omega for a moment, and Omega cowers against the cavern wall. Having turned her torchlight away from the creature, the dragon begins to settle. Thinking for a moment, she turns the torch completely off, and the dragon picks up the capacitor and begins to calmly chew on it. Omega can see the energy from the capacitor coursing through the dragon's body. Thinking that the torch would make a more attractive meal, she turns it back on and tosses it to the side of the cavern, and the dragon takes the bait. That's a pretty cool, uh, you know, there's a couple things going on here. One, I kind of thought maybe the the flashlight was sort of incensing the creature. You got that impression that every time you, mm. like, it was in direct light, it was like, ah! Well, and thing to point out here, um, I don't know how prevalent it is, but the whole planet kind of throws me back to the movie Pitch Black. I was just thinking that, yeah, yeah. And like all those creatures that, you know, are uh, like allergic to light, basically. Yeah, yeah. And the same, you know, underground tube structures. But uh, for me, it seemed like Omega had her ray moment right there. That's what I thought. Yeah, yes. like with the the snake thing. Yeah, because yeah. right. she's like, like it, got it she, dead to rights. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she hesitates. Yeah, and I didn't understand, like, I mean, it's very clear that when I say she cowers, that there's no other way to describe that. She cowers, but I couldn't figure out why. I mean, she, like you say, she had it dead to rights when it turned. So, and I mean, the first watch through, I'm, I'm even saying, I'm like, okay, pull the trigger, pull the trigger. And she doesn't. So, and that, that creates the opportunity to, to solve the problem another way. Um, but yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think it speaks to her intuition again, whether it's uh, force related or not. Yeah. That she's able to understand what the creature needs in the moment. I guess and so, yeah. Why I sort of say it's like her, like Andy said, her Ray moment where. Yeah. Or even an Ezra Bridger moment or a Kanan moment when speaking to the spiders, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's the way that Jedi or Force sensitive beings can connect with. The I thought that for a second creature. too, yeah. the, the Force connection. But then, like you say, Ezra Bridger, and I kind of think, you know, do they want to repeat? Because that's, let's face it, that's Ezra's, that's his shtick, right? That he is, he's very in tune with animals. You know, it's not impossible that other Force users, you know, have that same sensitivity, but we try not, I think Star Wars has this, you know, where, where it comes to like character traits, they don't necessarily like repeat them with main characters over and over again. No, it's true. It might just be like, so, you know, like, uh, in the role-playing games, all Jedi have like a set of a, a, a set of abilities they can do. Right. You know, there's variations yep, and yep. stuff, but there's like control powers, there's knowledge powers, and they, you don't really vary much from that. This is what a Jedi can learn. And, yeah. And there's not a lot of room for imagination, if you will. But it, it seems like you know when they they're moving to more sort of specific sets of powers. And yeah, can, yeah, like yeah. They have Cal Kestis's ability to like. Indiana Jones, the history of an object yes. by interacting with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly Ezra's ability to... So it may be just that we're canonizing more of the Jedi's abilities. I think so. Or, you know, in a larger... So if she can tap into those, maybe it just is a little speaking to her, maybe being Force-sensitive. I thought it was cool that uh, when the uh, the moon dragon goes after the flashlight, the, uh, the bioluminescence is a lot brighter than it was chewing on the capacitor. Mm. 
which is kind of funny because when they're taking out the old one, you know, they give him the warning, hey, that carries a, a big charge. Be careful. Right, right, right. <laughs> There's less charge now. It's been yeah, it's been, for yeah. a while. Yeah. Well, it was a new one, so maybe it wasn't it wasn't powered up yet as, yeah. as much, right? Spotting the capacitor uh, in the bioluminescence of the dragon, Omega grabs it and she crawls out of the tunnel. Hunter lifts her from the tubular opening and asks her, what were you thinking going down there alone? Well, she cheerfully questions. The mission was to retrieve the capacitor, wasn't it? And then she throws, you know, I tracked the dragon like you did. Seeing the DC-17 pistol in her hands, he asks, is that my blaster? And she tells him, don't worry, I didn't have to use it. So that's pretty cool, you know, that whole, would I be able to learn how to track like you did? Mm-hmm. And she even makes a point, like she, you know, how she picks up the dirt and she rolls it between her fingers. And that's right. I just thought it was a, a cute moment where, you know, like, you know, when a child does something and they, they, you know, the whole, hey, dad, look at me. Hey, dad. Hey, yeah. dad. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was, it was very much that moment. Like, look what I did. I got the past. And I thought that was really cute. It's true. And I noted last episode, I mentioned like the way she was watching them about to leap into hyperspace. She's very, she's very learning. Oh very yeah. Observant. Very much. And, I mean, it speaks to the actual nature of a child. They're going to pick up what you do, whether you're actually sitting there and physically instructing them or not, they're going to learn. Well, that, yeah, exactly. And I mean, any parent will tell you this, that, you know, people who say, well, I didn't teach my kid that. Well, you may not have told them do this or don't do that, but guess what? Modeled behavior is exactly that you're teaching. So they will, you know, imitate what's going on around them. That's right. So the elite squad shuttle returns to Camino. Governor Tarkin and Vice Admiral Rampart are there to meet it. When the ramp drops, the men see that the squad is short one soldier. Rampart dismisses the loss as an anticipated casualty. They knew the risk. They didn't send a probe droid to monitor this one. I know. (laughs) Yeah. They just take this one for road, right? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, we actually believe the official account this time. Yeah. Crosshair reports that even though Saw Guerrero wasn't on Onderon, the rest of his camp was dealt with. And as the squad marches off, the two officers remark that the test was a success. Rampart insists that the success is further proof that his initiative has potential. Tarkin agrees, further adding that the clone trooper program is a cost-prohibitive relic of the past. But until the time is right, it will continue to serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. This ties directly into that whole idea that, you know, we'd always sort of assume that, you know, clones didn't, you know, they all didn't just shut off and, and die one day, that they, they kept using them for a period. And I like the idea that, you know, this really suggests that we are going to see this transitory period. So with that, Tarkin departs, and his final remarks, then I leave this project in your capable hands. Mm-hmm. Admiral. That's right. Bit of a legacy line there. It's how, uh, you know, Piet got promoted in The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Except nobody yeah. had to die for this promotion. That's right. <laughs> well, ESO-1 did. Oh, that's true, yeah. Well, you know what? That guy, you know, hot shit as he thought he was, just wasn't hot enough. No. he's There's some analogous things to Finn there too the way that he didn't want to turn on civilians no it's interesting too uh, you know, he just had uh, it's a good thing uh, Captain Phasma wasn't on her I'm murdering my own troops today yeah so Admiral Rampart is surprised at the promotion but he thanks the governor nodding his appreciation meanwhile in a secluded hallway Lamasu and Nala Se discuss the impending doom that their organization is facing 
as Rampart would have the clones completely phased out. And as it turns out, the genetic material gathered from Django Fett is degrading. Really interesting. Lama Su tells Nala that now is the time to begin the next phase of their operation. Apparently, Nala Se has been experimenting with producing a superior clone. And Lama Su believes that if she is successful, it will secure their relationship with the Empire. So, pretty on the nose here. I think we can all assume that Omega, if she is not the superior clone, she's at least an early attempt at one. Yeah, and they, Nala say does say here we only need one of them. They and that's are, right. You know, they're our property. That's what the, the the prime minister says. They're our property, and we only need one. And in that moment, my heart wants to think about Omega, but they actually cut right to Crosshair. Yeah, and they already have Crosshair in their possession. So when I think, are we gonna we're gonna grab some of Crosshair's DNA because we need some non that's right some fresh stuff some non Django Yep. And then we're we're looking at the uniforms and I'm I'm gonna quadruple stamp down yeah, yeah. what I said. Last I'm right there with you. And say that this crosshair is going to be the genetic template for the death troop. Yeah, the yeah, it's exactly what I said. As you say, Nala say uh, suggested that such a contingency cannot be achieved without a direct source and that the clones will not return willingly, but Lamasu retorts that they are Kaminoan property and they only need one. So just my own, in my own sort of thoughts, you know, I kind of question it. Is it suggestive that they are trying to combine the genetic defects of every member of Clone Force 99, that their defects combined will essentially create a super soldier? It's entirely possible. This also could be the, the birth of the idea that they might be able to clone Force-sensitive beings. And, and therefore, that's what the, uh, right in line with what you said, um, Omega is a version of an experiment, if that's her, yeah. her end game. But it leads into a whole bunch of kind of cool stuff, like in certain aspects of Legend, because all of Legends, you know, uh, aren't connected to one another. And that's no. kind of the weird thing about Legends. But we have, we have early forays into the cloning process in, in the uh, Force Awakens games. Yeah, and the the attempts that you know, like the idea that Vader had his own cloning facility, yeah, and was over and over and over trying to attempt the perfection of cloning a force sensitive being, and with their propensity to canonize things, and and I know that uh, Star Killer is a huge fan favorite. There's there's ways that we could start to connect. Do you, you follow me? The I way do. that we could start to connect the idea of and of cloning. Uh, Force-sensitive beings, like we get that in Invader number eleven, seeing Luke's hand in a in a glass case on Exegol, and then thinking of the the Dark Empire storyline, the the uh, the idea that the early drafts of Force Awakens actually uh, the Chris Terrio uh, opened with Luke's hand and lightsaber floating through uh, cl- uh, space. Yeah, uh, think you know things of that nature. Um, the idea that we might get a canonized version of the Thrawn trilogy in terms of a cloned Luke Skywalker versus a cloned, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, so uh, that all this cloning stuff and a secret project and a, uh, the next phase of clones that are valuable to the empire all just make my, my brain just 
when you, you know, part of the, part of putting the show together obviously is there's a research component. And so you, you invariably end up looking at different things and, you know, we try to keep it fresh and we try not to, uh, use other people's ideas, but I mean, I'm not going to lie yesterday doing the research and I saw a split screen that put, uh, an image of crosshair, uh, no helmet on up against star killer. You can't help but see the similarity. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. You know, I mean, with you know, Sam Witwer was the um, modeling for that character uh, for Hell both yeah. games, and so you know, with his shaved head and and the image off the the cover of the game, and and you, you know, crosshair with his you know short cropped hairstyle, very similar, and being kind of lean in the face in a similar way, you're like, oh, they're yeah, maybe, you know, I could see it. Yeah, I could, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm envisioning it. Yeah, wild. Yeah, so retiring to their quarters, the elite squad settles in. And it's the former quarters of Clone Force 99. And you get a little bit of, uh, he's not all the way bad. He, he, he has a moment of introspection. Just a tiny yeah. moment when he stares at the, the, where Wrecker would carve their, their thing in. Crosshair. So there's a part of him that's not all the way, you know? No, I get it. I still sense the light in him. He sees, you know? the, uh, sees the hash marks uh, in the wall and all the other trappings, you know, of his clone brothers in the room. and Right. He sits silently on his bunk and, and he has this look, he's, he's troubled. There's right. something going on there. With the capacitor back where it belongs and the other systems repaired, Hunter gives the order to get us out of here. The Havoc Marauder lifts off and smoothly leaves the moon behind. When Wrecker comes up from the back of the ship, Hunter questions, where have you been? Wrecker crouches down in front of Omega and he tells her, come with me. As the three make their way to the back of the shuttle, Wrecker gestures toward a ladder partially covered by a curtain. He beckons Omega up the ladder, and pulling back the curtain, she can see that Wrecker has dressed up the area with blankets, a string of lights, and his very own teddy bear. He tells her, it's your own room. Which, what did you, you notice in the descriptive audio? It's a, it's a, it's a nerf. Oh, I did not. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a stuffed nerf. I missed that. Yeah. He says, what do you think? And of course she says, It's perfect! Wrecker tells her that he thought he could make the ship more like a home for her. And Omega picks up and hugs the teddy, the nerf, uh, saying, I've never had my own room before. And Hunter tells her, Well, you're a part of this squad now, too. Omega smiles and then goes back to admiring her room. And then we fade to black and conclude the episode. So, man, there's a lot going on there uh, in, a re- in a read between the lines kind of way. Doubling down on that family theme. Yeah, I mean, uh, all these... Yeah, the dad patch. uh, The dad batch. The Death Trooper thing really fascinates me because we've only seen them in two sources. Uh, We see them in Rogue One, and we see them again in The uh, the Mandalorian. And in both instances, the the Death Trooper ratio to Storm Trooper ratio, it's so small that you know it would be no surprise if in fact the uh, the death troopers are in fact uh you know superior clones uh it makes sense sorry uh, oh, i was just looking for the uh, death trooper uh action figure to read the bio on the back actually um well not implicitly implied in rogue one it, it it's in the the periphery like the pablo hidalgo books and all the yep. deep dives into uh, the art of and the story behind and all that have you um they're they're genetically altered 
to be actually you know they're they're taller they're like almost seven feet tall they're physically more imposing than your average storm yeah and it's like immediately apparent in rogue one it's very clear like how lean and how tall they are right they speak a different language and yeah and if you know if if Crosshair isn't anything but leaner and sort of taller than the rest of them. So I, that, I don't know what it. So it, it it lends itself to that. That um, that's another thing, right? Rogue One was the first. No, I guess Rebels technically was the first Disney Star Wars project, right? That's correct. But Rogue One is the first Disney Star Wars film, and so let's let's just let's talk about that for a Force second. Force Awakens. Force Awakens. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Are the Death Troopers actually speaking another language? I know they're the comm chatter. It's garbled. It's an encrypted sort of weird. Yeah. They, Was they that a? It. It's not a language, but an encrypted version of speech only for their unit. Let's talk about the the um, the story group aspect of how Star Wars is supposed to be moving forward. And and I question: Was this mapped out back then? Here's a death trooper. We have an idea of how we're going to get there. Let's do it. It's um, possible. It's 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 very possible. It it may be that they're just like they've got this deep breath of of stuff that they can dip into and and uh, and definitely explore. So they may just be connecting threads like retroactively and threads that don't have any necessarily loose ends or you know it's it's not a stretch to connect a death trooper to a genetically altered stormtrooper. No. It, and do it organically and retroactively and it wouldn't you know i don't see it rocking the boat it's not a no. it's not a major it's not like uh luke skywalker is a has actually been a twilight woman the whole time <laughs> <laughs> wait what scrolls, right so you know it's nothing catastrophic um and it's it's a neat through line because it explains the stuff we love and, and and we're the kings of you know wanting so much detail in our star wars that it's yeah it's, sickening the most <laughs> well, here's a possibility for you uh going back to the wrecker hitting his head and yep. possibly malfunctioning yep you have the thin lean crosshair you have the physically imposing wrecker yeah you take those two and put them together maybe getting a physically imposing tall lean type clone you know it's entirely possible you know, but you know, as she said, you only need one, and I mean, they've already got one. So, but the seeds are planted; they're coming. Back. It is so true. Try well, the, and get them. This is the thing. Why did you know Lamassu uh, make that comment about not uh, not coming back willingly? Like this whole assertion of clones as property thing. We talked about it before on the show. Where did the Kaminoans have a contingency? I mean, if they can build in a contingency for the Emperor, you know, can they not build in one for themselves? I- wouldn't see them not doing it you know so yeah and then when you talk about like what i said the other day order 65 yeah um, yeah which isn't necessarily canon but it does exist in the lore and it it may it just may have been to illustrate how ahead of the game that palpatine was he he beat them to the punch i mean if you were you know prime minister lamasu or one of his you know uh, inner circle and you knew that your entire operation hinged on the continued delivery of a superior military force, and you didn't really have any sort of guarantee. Like, I got to tell you, like, if it were me, I'd be building in something that my own troops could not turn against me. Yeah. Like the three laws of yeah. robotics. Yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, like like directly, absolutely. It would be a, a very interesting... 
you know, uh, what if to see, as Andy pointed out with the course on guard being there on Camino to suddenly, you know, have them turn against, you know, the, the recruits, the empire or the imperial recruits in a, in an effort that the Kaminoans can, you know, at the very least escape, you know, I'm, extinction. I'm remembering too, wasn't there like a separatist invasion of, of Camino at one point? I believe there was. Yeah, so like, I, I, and I'm thinking like, weren't, I thought a lot of this infrastructure was destroyed during that. And I can't recall now if that's canon or not, or, or where it took place. I'm going to have to look that one up. Jeepers. <laughs> I just assumed, you know, from what we saw in Attack of the Clones, and I mean, the 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 Clone Wars and now the Bad Batch have really not done anything to build on or dispel. But I always just assumed that that, you know, that initial scene when we first are introduced to Camino and the, and the one, I guess that would actually be a fourth Kaminoan, the guy who is riding the, the pterodactyl <laughs> yeah. manta ray thing coming out of the right, ocean. Right, right. Sure. But it's established like it's, it's this stilted multi-domed facility. I just assumed that that was one city on the planet, that there must be other stilted facilities or, or, or colonies somewhere else, well, maybe. You, you think if the Gungans can have like underwater cities, yeah, and yeah. the Kaminoans are over here building clones, they yeah. have to have like technology that would probably allow them to, you know, colonize under the water as well. You would think, and I mean, the fact that you know that guy does—he comes up out of the ocean. Are they water breathers too? Quite possibly. Yeah. So maybe, maybe the top one is just like you know your airport. There's yeah, exactly right. So there's something going on below the surface that we don't know about. That would be a cool exploration. What do you think, guys? Where do you think this is going next episode? Any ideas? Could be dark. Um, I'm really hoping that, uh, I mean, they're going to have to repair the ship. If they can get off the moon, there's a planet right there. We might get a little more Ordo. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll get that. Yes, it is Ordo. Certainly, um, one thing that they haven't done and that is just aching to be done is beyond having the genetic template be Django Fett, they haven't explored the connections between the clones and the Mandalorians. Because at the end of the day, the entire Grand Army of the Republic is a, is a Mandalorian army. Yep. Uh, and so I think it, it, like, our proximity to a Mandalorian world, possibly. Right. Uh, and just, just based on an, an Ordo moon dragon. Yeah. Ordo, Ordo moons, perhaps an or uh, uh, a moon of Ordo, perhaps. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I like that idea. Uh, I like the idea that Filoni's world is uh, Mandalorian centric. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, so, no, I, I have high hopes for like a deeper connection between the new stuff. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I love all the uh, like. It's not lost on me some of the Easter eggs in this, like the. Uh, the scenes on the moon, especially outside with the breath masks on, are exactly like the, the sort of vibe that you get in Empire Strikes Back with the yeah, Monarch. yeah, in the um, space slug. You know, the little tiny little things in this episode. If you guys caught like the uh, when it's Chow time, he's Hunter's holding a box. It's the same box Luke Skywalker has in Empire. Yeah, Strikes Back yeah, that's right. On Dagobah, right. mine, um, mine. <laughs> stuff that like that stuff remains perfect. But I, I like the way that we're connecting new properties together and and making it a really cohesive whole so i mean what, what have we got 13 episodes left we do yeah we're three in Man. three yeah. in so yeah 13 more are we taking the uh the sniper scope from that one scene as a nod to predator 
oh, I, I absolutely said, I'm like, oh, Predator Vision. Because yeah, like normally he's not using that heat vision. Yeah, I yeah. guess with the smoke yeah. and all. It totally makes yeah. sense that yeah. they would. Yeah, cool. This is more just for you guys. Uh, did you watch it with the descriptive video on? No, uh, I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of uh, What do you think of descriptive video, British man? Uh, better than the other. Uh, better than Clone Wars. Uh, yes. <laughs> Not what, as good as the Mandalorian, but no. better than Clone Wars. What did you think of the misidentification? The misidentified Crosshair as one of the the elite squad, and then oh, one really? of the elite squad as Crosshair. Yeah. They actually attributed the sniper shot to one of the other guys, not Crosshair. I didn't catch that. So yeah, was uh, I don't also didn't notice. Did they name any of the other? No, just squad? just just ESO one. And I think ESO three so, okay, so got there's a, a tag. There's well. a, a thought I had. And yeah, this goes back to me reading the comics and stuff. Every single one of those Elite Squad characters, except the female, actually has lines, spoken lines but they actually spent a lot of screen time on her and she's sort of always, if you rewatch it, she's got her head down or to the side and shifting and stuff. And I thought, like at first I was like, man, her, her eye shape. Yeah. She reminds me a lot of, um, Sabine's mom. Oh, but then you know, I looked at, some I looked that, side, yeah. side each Adam and it's the wrong, it's the wrong thing. But I, I fell on, there's this, uh, and it might be a rewriting of what's already Canon, but it's comic Canon and they do alter that quite a bit. Yep. This is a character called Alea, Elena Zara. Okay. And she's a, she's a hand-picked Imperial recruit. And in the comics, she's trained by Tarkin personally. Oh, really? Much later in the canon, too. Uh, so at some point, he would have to be introduced to her. But um, he, I mean, she he elevates her to like a lieutenant colonel. And she becomes oh, wow. like, oh, I guess like Tarkin's hand. You know, the, uh, the uh, Star Destroyer Tarkin's will? Yes. She becomes the commander of oh, that. Oh, okay. And um, she's like, she's even personally involved with Vader. Vader meets her at one point and Tarkin, you know, is lauding her ability as a commander and her attack strategy and all right. this. It's possible that that could be the introduction of that character into a visual canon because she is very prominent in uh, in the comics. I saw something yesterday that suggested that she might be connected to Aiden Verzio in some way. I also had a little Aiden Verzio thought but Iden Versio would have been far too young at this point. I guess so, yeah. I think it was more along the idea of the the notion of an elite squad and and that Iden Versio was sort of the, you know, a prominent commander of an elite squad. That's right. Yeah, that's so right. that's a, pretty loose if you ask me, but mm-hmm. you know, that just tells you like <laughs> you know, there are moving parts and we could go different directions. There definitely them. are. And, uh, mileage will vary. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fans of our show, I'm sure you guys are, uh, you know, consuming this in other, other forms as well. So I hope, uh, I hope our interpretation stands up to your scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. We don't like to weave them loose, but sometimes that's all you have. <laughs> that's right. All right. I like guys. to throw them out there in case they're right later. I do you know? too. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't mind throwing out something early and then being proven wrong. Like I'm so happy about that. So yeah. And then at you know with the case of Zara, like if I hit a bullseye on that 15 episodes from now, I'd be like, wow, yeah, cool. Yeah. So I don't mind throwing out a few a few bobbers in the water. Like no, that. no, not at all. And I'm just gonna, I'm just going to go out uh, right now and just um, you know for those of you. Uh, who've listened to the first, uh, the first episode where we covered the first two episodes. And uh, I just want to say that I am, uh, 
I am coming around. I am uh, I am a believer. I love Star Wars as a property, <laughs> and, and the show is making me a believer. So, uh, yeah, glad to be back on forum today. Glad to uh, dig down on this one and uh, give you guys the depth of uh, analysis that we are accustomed to doing. So very happy about that. Anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap it up? Yeah, just one. I'm super excited. Super excited about this show. I'm glad we're we're still doing Star Wars. Uh, you know, like yeah. it's going strong. It's not it's not waning. It's uh, it's not just uh, action figure stuff. That's um, <laughs> you know, it's it's that's quality stuff that we can get behind this fan. Yeah, it's not just to sell fans. toys. No, which is nice because I don't even know if they do that anymore. Do they still do that, Wes? Toys. <laughs> i don't know i live in ontario i'm not allowed to buy toys right now i'm not allowed to buy anything right now. i can't i can't walk into a store and buy toys and all the star wars i want i had the weirdest yeah. experience with amazon i gotta say that was super strange they i, I ordered that that zeb character zeb and, he's fantastic uh, they, they um i got a, a, a sort of a notice from amazon saying that like uh canada post uh my package was in halifax but that the because of the pandemic the delivery had been delayed Oh. And through a sort of series of, of searching, what I found was that my the, the staging area for Hasbro Toys in Halifax is the Dartmouth Toys R Us warehouse. Oh, no way. So while you can't buy a Zeb on the shelf there. You can go and pick it up. Uh, but they're closed <laughs> from the pandemic because toys aren't essential. Uh, right. So eventually it got mailed to me by Canada Post. But the idea that we could do a Rebels-style strike on the <laughs> Toys R Us warehouse and get all those toys that we can't freaking get on the shelves oh, it's <laughs> and frustr- liberate them from the corporation. It's frustrating for me being in Ontario and because, you know, toys are non-essential. I mean, I, I know. I mean, as a toy retailer, I'm a non-essential retailer, so I'm, I'm closed uh, to curbside only. Uh, mm-hmm. Walmart apparently is now doing curbside, so... Uh, the the most current if you're a black series collector right now the current wave which includes crosshair and uh, Asajj Ventress is on the pegs now. Wow! So, so if you were lucky are, enough to get are, one, get one are, for me. Is Walmart allowed to put curbside stuff non-essential? So I don't I don't know. At like, the beginning of this third lockdown, they did put out an email saying that uh, through online pickup they would not be selling any non-essential items. So I like. I can walk into Walmart right now and buy anything I want. Yeah. Um, but they're limiting the capacity of the store to like 25%, which is, that's not a lot of people in Walmart. It's kind of, it's kind of freaky. Actually. Yeah. But the pegs are empty. So there's I've heard, yeah. No Marvel stuff. There's no Star Wars stuff. There's some King Kong. They're like really bad King Kong stuff. Yeah. There's, uh, there's Motu peg warmers. Um, yeah, I've heard that too bunch of more, like uh battle cats that are on sale for 12 bucks and stuff i'm thinking of picking one oh up, man uh, um well andy's just I, frustratingly throwing his arms up i think he wants you to buy him one. Oh no <laughs> yeah. i just got one for 21 and i thought that oh was cheap. no okay oh, yeah no All i right. saw a battle i saw multiple battle cats that were going for 12 bucks at walmart but uh and then uh i can't remember the other two characters that were peg warmers a character i'm not super familiar with and then i think manny faces manny faces yeah yeah, yeah interesting um possibly ram man maybe uh, but no, none of the like you know none of the no he-mans no skeletors no tilas i couldn't no. find anything yeah, yeah. that i would want uh, and the, um a lot of dc stuff but i yep I, uh, a lot of dc stuff but that's not it does not uh, it doesn't ring true with me I after listening it. to that uh that i sent you guys the link to that video uh with uh with the uh with scott 
talking about how uh you know it's, yeah. if it's available for retail it's not meant for you and it, that's it right. actually it makes a lot of sense that we're like, only uh, we're only 20 percent of the uh of the market share for toys right so the yeah. fact that there even is a, a chance of having a black series figure on a on a peg is is that's the only reason those are there are for a whim you know you buy your kid a that's right nostalgia like that i would be a closet fan of star wars and i would see a stormtrooper on the shelf and yep. I would buy one for my father. i love stormtroopers therefore you as my child will love stormtroopers right. but they're not and this is in it but then my my question is if 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 we can understand the market and an expert like that can understand the market why do these chain stores then get contracts for exclusives that never make it to shelf so we we talked about I talk, when I interviewed Scott. Uh, we're talking Scott Knightlick, a former Mattel right. executive. When I interviewed Scott, he talked about you know store exclusives are basically what happens is a, a toy company, let's say at New York Toy Fair or like a San Diego Comic Con, they'll show off essentially one wave of figures. So that may be six figures, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they typically show these things at New York Toy Fair, it's at the beginning of the retail year so the idea is based on one wave of figures you as walmart and target and other big box you will commit to 12 months of product so you are buying the other you know uh three seasons worth of product based on the first six figures you saw and so the the retailer exclusive is an enticement to the retailer to buy a year's worth of product if you buy a whole year's worth we're going to give you this exclusive product for your store that makes sense. And that's why these retailer exclusives exist. And I, as a retailer, I totally get it. As a collector, especially a collector who lives in Canada, mm. it just it pisses me off. When I see the uh, Instagram posts of the just the figures that are on shelves that I can't even, I can't even find images yeah. of on the internet. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Let alone purchase uh, in real time. It drives me insane. <laughs> I went to a Walgreens in the U S a couple of years ago, hoping to find, you know, some Walgreens exclusive stuff. And there was nothing there. <laughs> I, um, uh, not, not thinking that the 3.7 line was ever going to die. Yeah. I went to a Walmart in Hawaii and oh, it was wow. described to me. I asked, I had to ask somebody, where's the, where's a Walmart around here? And they were like, well, there's a country Walmart down the street. And I was like, what is a country Walmart? And I went there West and it was the biggest Walmart I ever seen in my life. Oh, wow. And the Size toy section country. Was like, it was crazy. The toy section was so huge and there were so many star Wars toys on the shelf. I couldn't even begin to process it. And the thing that there was the most of was the old Walmart exclusive 3.75 inch black yeah. series. Yeah. The, what became the vintage collection. Yeah. There were so many of those. I was just, my jaw dropped. I yeah. Pace with it. And the only thing I was, Lauren was like, we're not here for Star Wars toys. We're here for, for Hawaii. And I was like, I get yeah. it. I understand. And but I it's so small. It's so small. Solo Chewy with the goggles. Though. Yeah. And that was, that was, and not thinking that I, uh, the rest of the solo line would be so easy to find when yeah I got back to canada i couldn't find you know i think i have four solo figures from no, the 3.75 cool. 5 poa but yeah no i it was i was blown away just like you say like a walgreens in the states i yep. would just holy cow there were so many things there that weren't being consumed and, no. you, and you start to realize yeah there's warehouses full of things not being consumed hasbro get them to me yeah Andy, you had something you wanted to uh, end on. Uh, just a minor thing that I 
picked up watching this time, which obviously I should have picked up on the first episode, but uh, in the opening sequence, right, as they flash across all the helmets, normally for like the Mandalorian and everything, it's been C-3PO, yeah, Darth Vader, Vader and, and the really recognizables. Yeah. For the Bad Batch, they've shifted that. It was all animated characters. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that you, when you said that to me, I'm like, oh, yeah. So they're uh, really giving it its own footing. Yeah, like it's, it's cool. Detail. Yeah, like they've made just that, the Star Wars, the little Star Wars, I, I don't even know, uh, you can insert the, the music for this but the, to punctuate yeah. the part, but the with the heads. Yeah, all yeah. animated characters. Absolutely. And it's like, uh, it's sort of passing the mantle on, which is why you, I think yeah. we've had Tarkin for three episodes, and I don't yep. think we'll get a lot of Tarkin moving forward. But yeah. We'll a lot of Rampart. I thought so. He's he, that mantle passing in this. Absolutely. Sort of symbolic of that. Yeah. Yeah. Tarkin's going to be the, uh, the, the bigger level bad, because I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to see, you know, the, the Emperor. Uh, per se is pretty reclusive you know in this time like well, they like, talk about him in his policies but there's like nothing they say, though we're laying the groundwork this is yeah the bottom floor we're building it's his agents that are out there making it happen and I, I think so rampart's going to be the recurring baddie and and tarkin will be the 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 one level up yeah as it were i uh, think not not in a traitorous way or in a in a in a like a way that he's going to become the good guy eventually, but he's the uh, Rampart is our agent Callus for the show. Yeah, I was going to say that he is the Callus, but he's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's too into that whole. Uh, uh, I guess we could say Compnor uh, for those of you who right. are fans of Legends. He's a yeah. uh, he's laying the foundations uh, of Compnor with uh, with Tarkin. All right, guys. That's it for me on this episode of uh, The Fan Batch. Hopefully you guys will stick with us and uh, come back and join us on the next one as we uh, deep dive on episode four of The Bad Batch. All right, guys, until next time, be good, enjoy uh, the weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Same batch time, same Same batch channel. Same batch channel. Bye for now, guys. everybody. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Fandom Power. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production.
Have you ever wanted to start a podcast, but you didn't know where to begin? Maybe you'd like to try podcasting without having to invest in any recording equipment. Do you have an idea for a show, but you're not sure how to develop it? Let Sawcast Productions take care of all of that so you can focus on what it is you want to say. Sawcast Productions offers podcasting solutions ranging from recording and basic editing to fully produced episodes complete with all the audio embellishments of a broadcast quality show. When your show is ready, Sawcast Productions can distribute it too. Contact us online today. So, what do you want to say? <laughs> <laughs>